Chapter Twenty of the Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Willow Springs. Two days' travel time from the river, along the saw-toothed range of Echo Cliffs, stood Presby's trading post, a little red stone square house in a green and pretty valley called Willow Springs. It was nearing the time of sunset, that gorgeous hour of color in the painted desert, when Shefford and his party rode down upon the post. The scene lacked the wildness characteristic of Cayenta or Red Lake. There were wagons and teams, white men and Indians, burros, sheep, lambs, mustangs saddled and unsaddled, dogs and chickens. A young, sweet-faced woman stood in the door of the post, and she it was who first sighted the fugitives. Presby was weighing bags of wool on a scale, and when she called, he lazily turned, as if to wonder at her eagerness. Then he flung up his head with its shock of heavy hair in a start of surprise, and his florid face lost its lazy insolence to become wreathed in a huge smile. "'Haven't seen a white person in six months,' was his extraordinary greeting. An hour later, Shefford, clean-shaven, comfortably clothed once more, found himself a different man. And when he saw Fay in white again, with a new and indefinable light shining through that old haunting shadow in her eyes, then the world changed, and he embraced perfect happiness. There was a dinner, such as Shefford had not seen for many a day, and such as Fay had never seen and that brought to Jane Witherstein's eyes the dreamy memory of the bountiful feasts which, long years ago, had been her pride. And there was a story told to the curious trader and his kind wife, a story with its beginning back in those past years, of riders of the Purple Sage, of Fay Larkin as a child, and then as a wild girl in Surprise Valley, of the flight down Nanesoche Boko, and the canyon of a great Mormon, and a noble Indian. Presby stared with his deep-set eyes, and wagged his tousled head, and stared again. Then, with the quick perception of the practical desert man, he said, I'm sending Teamsters into Flagstaff tomorrow. Wife and I will go along with you. We've light wagons. Three days, maybe, or four, and we'll be there. Shefford, I'm going to see you marry Fay Larkin. Fay and Jane and Lassiter showed strangely against this background of approaching civilization, and Shefford realized more than ever the loneliness and isolation and wildness of so many years for them. When the women had retired, Shefford and the men talked a while. Then Joe Lake rose to stretch his big frame. Friends, reckon I'm all in, he said. Good night. In passing, he laid a heavy hand on Shefford's shoulder. Well, you got out. I've only a queer notion how, but someone beside an Indian and a Mormon guided you out. Be good to the girl. Goodbye, pard. Shefford grasped the big hand, and in the emotion of the moment did not catch the significance of Joe's last words. Later Shefford stepped outside into the starlight for a few moments' quiet walk and thought before he went to bed. It was a white night. The coyotes were yelping. The stars shone steadfast, bright, cold. Nas Bega stalked out of the shadow of the house 
and joined Shefford. They walked in silence. Shefford's heart was too full for utterance, and the Indian seldom spoke at any time. When Shefford was ready to go in, Naste Bega extended his hand. Goodbye, Bainai, he said, strangely, using English and Navajo in what Shefford supposed to be merely good night. The starlight shone full upon the dark, inscrutable face of the Indian. Shefford bade him good night, and then watched him stride away in the silvery gloom. But next morning Shefford understood. Naste Bega and Joe Lake were gone. It was a shock to Shefford, yet what could he have said to either? Joe had shirked saying good-bye to him and Fay, and the Indian had gone out of Shefford's life as he had come into it. What these two men represented in Shefford's uplift was too great for the present to define, but they and the desert that had developed them had taught him the meaning of life. He might fail often, since failure was the lot of his kind, but could he ever fail again, in faith in man or God, while he had mind to remember the Indian and the Mormon? Still, though he placed them on a noble height and loved them well, there would always abide with him a sorrow for the Mormon and a sleepless and eternal regret for that Indian on his lonely cedar slope with the spirits of his vanishing race calling him. Willow Springs appeared to be a lively place that morning. Presby was gay, and his sweet-faced wife was excited. The Teamsters were a jolly, whistling lot, and the lean Mustangs kicked and bit at one another. The trader had brought out two light wagons for the trip, and, after the manner of desert men, desired to start at sunrise. From across the painted desert towered the San Francisco Peaks, black-timbered, blue-canyoned, purple-hazed, with white snow like the clouds around their summits. Jane Witherstein looked at the radiant Fay and lived again in her happiness, and at last excitement had been communicated to the old gunman. Sure we're going to live with Fay and John, and be near Venters and Bess, and see the blacks again, Jane, and Venters will tell you, as he did me, how Wrangle run Black Star off his legs. All connected with that early start was sweet, sad, hopeful. And so they rode away from Willow Springs, through the green fields of alfalfa and cottonwood, down the valley, with its smoking hogans and whistling mustangs and scarlet-blanketed Indians, and out upon the bare, ridgy, colorful desert toward the rosy sunrise. End of chapter 20